So from verse 14 and on, chapter 2, verses 14 and on, it says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. Remember what that means? That means persuade her. I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, say with me, in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my bell. For I will remove the names of the bells from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant. That's verse 18. I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and sword and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And here we go, verse 19. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. So the culmination of this gift of marriage, of remarriage, is that they will know the Lord. That is one of the most important things that the creature should do and that creation exists for, for the knowledge of God. The creation doesn't exist for themselves. Creation doesn't exist for their own benefit. Creation exists to know God, the knowledge of God because that changes everything. So as we've been talking about verse 19 and 20 for the past two weeks now, this is the third, third, fourth, fourth week that we're talking about verse 19, we're, we're digging into this concept of righteousness. And here is the gift that God gives his wife. His future wife, the one that he had already married, the crooked wife that had been uh, seeking and whoring after other gods, this wife that is standing at the altar with God is not seen in that perspective anymore. She isn't a crooked woman anymore. She is a straight uh, rec a woman of righteousness now because God's mercy has declared her righteous. So I want you guys to always remember that fact that even though she didn't deserve to be righteous, even though Israel and the metaphor does not deserve to be called and declared righteous, God in his mercy and in his love and in his grace calls his Wife to be righteous. Therefore, she is straight. She is in rectitude as opposed to being crooked as she was before. Her past is no longer with her at the altar. I want you guys to really understand that because as we dig more into righteousness, you have to understand this fact that being in your old nature, your old historical way of being crooked, and I'm going to always use that word crookedness because that goes hand in hand with knowing the righteousness of God. Right? God's righteousness is a straight line. Our wretchedness is a crooked line. If you've lived in the East Coast, I had the chance to live in the East Coast for, for four years. We have the benefit of, of living on, on parallel streets, on streets that go straight northwest or south. Uh, south, north, or west, east. I'm sorry, I confused that a little bit. So we're used to that a little bit here, except for in the north side, you get these streets that, that are kind of diagonal. But we're generally, if you go down Cermak, you can go down to Cermak all the way to Wheaton, Illinois, and you can go all the way almost to Chicago, downtown Chicago, on Cermak. It's one straight street. 
However, if you go to the East Coast, because it's an older uh, side of the country, you have all these zigzags and all these weird ways. And you, I, I remember my first year of college, I got lost uh, my first night going to my apartment. And I was up until like 5 in the morning trying to find my house, because back then I didn't have an iPhone, and iPhones didn't exist back in the day. So I couldn't find my way, and it was uh, embarrassing to be walking around the streets at 5 in the morning trying to find my way. Anyways, the paths were crooked, and that's kind of what I want you guys to figure. When things are crooked, it isn't easy to find yourself. It's you get lost along the way because things are crooked. And that is what God did, and that is what God does. It is no longer this crooked path that this woman has before her God. Now it's a straight road. It's Cermak Road or 22nd Street. It's straight, and now she stands at the altar with a righteous God being declared righteous for herself. But in this righteousness that we see in verse 19 that says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness. It's the gift that he gives. These are the gifts, all these attributes that we're reading in verse 19 and 20. These are the gifts that he gives his wife. And it is no longer material things. It isn't any longer the blessings of the material Part of the marriage. Now it's him giving of himself. And what is God giving? He's giving the best of himself. As we studied, if you weren't here last week, look up the, the preaching on, on YouTube. You'll, you'll be able to know the gift of righteousness, what, what this implies when he gives it. And so this being the first part of his attribute that he's giving, we were discussing the attributes of righteousness, and this being the first gift that he gives, it's very important for us to understand what righteousness means. God is giving the best of himself, and all of heaven knows that God sits on the throne, as Psalm chapter 97 says, sits on the throne of righteousness. So he governs from a place of righteousness. And we, we uh, discuss the definition a bit of righteousness, and it's his moral character, the, nat the nature of himself. Everything God does is righteous. Everything he is is righteous. That's just part of who he is. And so that becomes very important because this is what he gives, and this is how he wins his wife, this wife that has abandoned him, this wife that has, that has gone away from him is won back, by his righteousness. Now this righteousness becomes very important. And that's why we've been studying the attributes of God. And we've been on this. This is the second week of the right, of righteousness attribute. And I want you guys to really understand this. Because we, in, in church we need, a, we need to have some time of studying the, 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 the deep theological concept of who God is. I want you guys to understand what God is, who God is. And even though we will never scratch the surface of knowing God completely, we should understand what the Bible at least reveals to us about this God, especially in Hosea and how he's winning back a, a people that do not deserve his love. So this righteousness concept comes very close to what we understand about God. Now, I want you guys to understand righteousness for one main reason. If you don't understand God's righteousness in Hosea's world, how he's winning back his wife, it'll be very difficult for you to understand Christ's love for his church. It'll be very difficult for you to understand who Christ is and what Christ has done for you. 
You are Christ's church. And it's very interesting that Peter and Paul have this concept of, of telling men to love their wives as God loves the church. So there's this concept of church and love and righteousness that Christ has for his church that if we don't understand what the Old Testament teaches on righteousness, it's going to be very difficult for us to understand the concept of righteousness from Christ's perspective. So this righteousness speaks about a God who is involved. I want you guys to to get that from from this point on. What I'm going to be focusing on today is the involvement of God. If we can use philosophical terms, it's the imminence of God, God being with his people. That's a good God, knowing that God, who is a righteous God, is involved. Now, if you look, look at it this way, God marrying a wife, God marrying his people, Israel, God betrothing himself to Israel and to his wife is saying that the relationship that we will have as husband and wife and you will also treat me righteously. Isn't that kind of a fair deal? Right? When you marry somebody or you're going out with somebody, you say, you know, I'm going to treat you nice and I expect that in return. At least no one here has a different understanding of that, right? No one here says, I'm going to marry you, but you could do whatever you want, see whoever you want, as long as uh, you still come home at night and uh, we get to cuddle in bed and watch Netflix. Like, that's not the deal. It, it's, uh, it's, you're going to love me and I'm going to love you and that's it. You ain't going to love anybody else. That's kind of what the, it's, the expectation is, God's righteousness on this behalf. So he's involved in this marriage and he expects this righteousness to be reciprocated, to be given back. So... With that said, I want you guys to understand some concepts of God. Remember, we're talking about God's righteousness, and this is one of the biggest attributes God has that is communicable, that is shared, that is moral, that we can attain, that we ourselves can do. Because there's other things that God is that we cannot achieve. And so this becomes very important to understand who God is and why he wins and acts in righteousness. Here's some concepts that I want you guys to get. I'm going to get a little bit philosophical with you guys, but I want you guys to understand this. So I'm going to define the words imminence and transcendence. So again, that's imminence and transcendence. And what does that mean? Imminence is a concept of God that is described in a way that God is involved with his world, as how I mentioned, but... It can also mean being involved, but not relationally involved. So God is present, but isn't in relationship with the material world. Material world being things that you feel, ourselves, us being material with God. So God's imminence in some circles, now I'm not talking about the Christian church now, I'm talking about uh, people in general, they have this concept of God's imminence as just being involved, being in the world, a fairly mystical kind of concept of God, but sometimes not in relationship with his people. So there's this concept of pantheism. I don't know if you guys have heard of the, this concept of pantheism, but, but this is interesting because pantheist or pantheism says that everything is God. So it's interesting that God is so imminent, so involved in this world that this pulpit becomes God. But it goes a little bit more than that. It goes a little bit more philosophical than that. And it describes you and me as being part God. That's, that's kind of 
It's kind of interesting, right? You, God. Now, if you look at the person next to you, you'll be like, man, you look nothing like God. There ain't, there ain't no, no thing about you that is godly. Uh, but, but that's kind of what imminence says. Or pantheism says that we are all God. That we contain within ourselves the essence of God. That's interesting. Another imminent view is panentheism. It's an extra end, which means not that we are necessarily gods, but that we all make up God. So, in a sense, all of us here are part of a collective group with the rest of the world and the universe that make God. So this is the imminent kind of understanding, pantheism and panentheism, which we are either gods or we all make up part of God. That, that view is a little bit disturbing, but I'll get to that in a little bit. Now then we, we have a separate view. The imminent view is the one that we just stated. We have a transcendent view from God, which says uh, God is distant and transcendent. This is the world, and God is far away from it. Some religions that you may know uh, abide to this. If you know anything about the Muslim faith, Allah is this transcendent God. He is all-powerful, almighty. He is only God, only he is holy. He is distant and separate from his creation. He gets involved, but not relationally. That's the concept of Allah. If you've studied the Hindu religion, you'll know that Brahman, one of their deities, is this mystical transcendent God, but can be invoked within his people. It's a little bit mystical. It's a little bit more meditation-oriented. It's a little bit more, let's feel God. Let's see him move. So, so we get a lot of this meditation kind of religions that, that operate on meditation a lot. That's a transcendent type of view. And there's this other view that verges on atheism, but it's called deism. Now, what is deism? Deism is another transcendent view where it says God is, there is a God. He created this world, but then did what the clockmaker does. He builds the clock, winds it, and then just lets it run. In a sense, God builds the smart car, and the smart car drives itself. You don't need to be in the smart car. I don't know how much you guys trust smart cars, but, but that's kind of the idea where God creates, and then God sits back on his lazy boy recliner and turns on the universe television and just watches things go with his popcorn, and he's laughing, and he's crying, and he's looking at us like, ha, 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 doesn't get involved, isn't personal, isn't relational with his people. It's just that type of understanding. God is distant. God is far. God, is, God just created, but he's never involved with his people. And unfortunately, that view is sometimes very prevalent in the Christian faith, where because and this is why this understanding of righteousness and studying Hosea is so important and, and, and knowing the balance of good and evil and knowing the balance of, of God working justly with his people. This is the importance of this balance because if we don't understand who God is at this level, then we will think that everything in this world is wrong and it's God's fault. And that's why we come to that understanding in many cases where we say, if God was so good, and all of us have heard this, if God is so good, then why is evil involved in the world? 
It's that philosophical question that is always asked. If your God, if the Christian God, if the biblical God is so good, then explain to me what evil is doing in this world. Is God not powerful enough to eradicate evil completely? Is he not holy enough? Is he not mighty enough to deal with evil? So that becomes a transcendent type of view where you retract yourself from ever coming into this relational aspect. That's why when you ask people to come to church or, or do they know about God or they, do they think about God or, or do they think about spiritual things, some of them are like, man, why am I even going to bother with the God of the Bible? Why am I even going to uh, think about a, a, this type of God if, if look at the world, look at the world around us. It's a mess. It's a disaster. How am I going to believe and how am I going to go worship and how am I going to go waste my Sunday morning five degrees below zero? How am I going to wake up at eight o'clock in the morning and go to a church to worship a God who is transcendent and doesn't care about the world? It becomes, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, square away in our minds or in our mindsets. But the reason why I bring these concepts up isn't so that we can take a test on philosophy. This becomes very important because we have to understand that God in his righteousness is both imminent and transcendent. And I'm going to explain that a little bit more as we dive deeper into uh, his righteousness. But we have to understand this. God is transcendent in the aspect of no one is like our God. See, that goes against pantheistic views where we say we are God. Well, the Bible says that no one is like our God. No one comes close to being like our God. Nothing in this world can ever measure up to God. We cannot even faithfully or perfectly describe God because none of us have actually seen God. So there is this level of transcendence of, of a God so separate from us that he's so distinct from us because, first of all, he's infinite and we are finite. And that becomes very important for us to understand because we act like infinite beings sometimes when only God is infinite. But apart from his transcendence, that he is matchless in the universe, he is also, at the same time, very imminent. Like what was imminence again? Being involved with his world. He's not imminent in the sense, again, of pantheistic view where we're all God. But here's the imminence part of it. We all contain God. God is in us. That is why the, the Matthew account of creation, of Jesus Christ coming to earth, of being incarnate, that is why Matthew says he shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. God is with his people. We are in God. We are with God. God is with us. Not that we are God, but God is with us. He's imminent in the sense that we can't hide from him. King David himself says this in Psalm chapter 139. Where can I go to hide from you? Where can I run from your spirit? God is everywhere and is present with us. He exists, but he's distinct from everything else. He is involved with this world, though he is transcendent at the same time. Here's the beauty of it. His righteousness we're talking about righteousness this entire time. 
God hears and answers prayer. See, here's the big theological concepts that we, that we get and that we present and we understand transcendence and imminence. But, but to, to the ABCs of the faith, when it comes down to the nitty gritty of today, of tomorrow and of our lives, this imminent God is the God who answers and hears our prayers. All of us here can pray. You can go home and pray. You can go home and express your sadness, your, 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 your fears, and God will listen and God will answer. God goes to war on our behalf. That's what the Bible says. God fights for us. We have to understand this, this Pauline concept that the enemies that we face are not physical, material enemies, but they are from the spirit world, and we have a God who is spirit, and he fights on our behalf. That's why the demons trembled when they heard the name Jesus. It becomes very important. God comforts us in our sorrow. might have some... Sadness here. You might have some anguish in your life. You may be going through some difficult things at this very precise moment. There may be some areas in your life that have been stricken down with sadness. And let me tell you this, an imminent God who is at the same time transcendent comforts us in our sorrow. One of my professors from school said it best when he says, Dr. Feinberg says, he is the king that cares. We all have this concept of a king, a transcendent king who sits on his throne and governs his people and is just being served. But our king, God king, serves his people. Picture it on the physical sense. Picture Buckingham Palace in England and the queen and the king and, and, and them Everyone sees them, and you can't go into the Buckingham Palace. You can't be a part of the table of the king. You can't be a part of the royal uh, establishment. Of, uh, you can't be there. You, you're not allowed there. You're separated because you're just some poor fool trying to get into the palace. You can't. But imagine the king stepping out of his courts and into the streets and eating and walking and speaking and talking and being with the people, that's in a sense who God is, though he is very distinct from us, transcendent. Though he is greater than us, infinite, he is still with us, imminent. That's what I want you to understand from righteousness, because if God is transcendent, that means that everything we've already understood transcendence is God is separate from us and distinct from us but he is righteous the Bible yes last week we talked about this completely he is righteous everything he does is righteous his nature is righteousness and justice and so in this transcendent nature of himself and being involved with us imminently what does that mean that means that he governs righteously that means that he acts righteously 
That means that he moves righteously within his people. At the Hosea level, at the Hosea concept is he's going to be married righteously with his wife. He will treat his wife righteously with respect. He will love his wife truthfully and honestly. He will listen to his wife. He will comfort his wife. He will walk with his wife in sorrow. He will praise her in the joy and cry with her in the sadness. How many wives would love to see or feel a husband like that? Who will understand. A husband that understands. And, and for us husbands, if, 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 you're, if you're a guy here that's married, you've kind of come to that understanding that it's very difficult to understand women. Now I say this very cautiously because my wife is here. But we have all kind of understood. It's hard, man. Sometimes we don't know what they're thinking. It's difficult. It's, it's a mystery to us sometimes. But what God is presenting in his marriage is that he understands, is that he listens is that he cares and he loves. And so righteousness, therefore, as we started speaking about it last week, has three aspects. We talked about the, 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 the ethical aspect of God's righteousness last week, of, who, of his nature. But then this ethical aspect also gets translated into the second aspect or the second category of righteousness, which is the forensic aspect of righteousness. And this is the, here's where it gets hard, and here's where it gets difficult, because this is how God treats his people now, okay? This is righteousness when, when Hosea says that I will betroth you to me in righteousness, when I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to marry you in righteousness, he's, he's saying that now he's going to act a certain way with his wife or with his people, and, and those people are going to have to act a certain way with him, and not only with him, but they're going to have to act a certain way with others. It's, a, it's that understanding of forensics, of being and acting with each other. So righteousness is going to be measured by God's law or by God's decree. And when I mention law here, I don't want you to think of Old Testament law. I'm talk, I want you to think about a law of righteousness, a law that is governed and that is presented ultimately in Jesus Christ. You got to remember that because Hosea themselves are, are having to abide by a new covenant because the old covenant didn't work. So we're not talking about the Old Testament law. We're talking about new, new covenant law that is abounded and found completely in God's person. So how is, gonna, how is God going to act? With his people. He's going to act righteously. So everyone gets what they deserve. Is that fair? You, like I want, I want to start off right there. Is that a fair concept of God? That everyone will get what they deserve. So if you, all right, let, let's put it in our, in, in our, in our modern day uh, understanding. If, if you go to school, you graduate from MIT, and uh, you have an engineering degree, and, and you pursue further education, 
and you advance in your engineering degree and and you spent so much time studying and at school and in, and in engine and being in a, as an engineer and, and the practice and, and developing concepts and, and doing all of that. And, and you work your butt off so that one day you will have this opportunity to live in a place surrounded by other engineers that most likely make roughly the same amount of money that you make. And you will be able to afford a certain type of lifestyle that many other people won't be able to afford because you worked your butt off to achieve that degree or that place. I, I think about these, uh, these guys from Silicon Valley or these engineers from, from the, the tech world, and I'm like, wow, these guys were, are, are brilliant. They worked themselves to death almost, but they came up with concepts like Facebook and, and Instagram and, and, and all these other technological advances that, that makes you like, wow, this is incredible, but do they deserve it? Well, we can say, well, yeah, you know, they... They, they were the kids that didn't go out to play in the summer. When you and me were out there climbing trees and eating dirt, these kids were reading books on science, and they were writing stuff down, and you and I were jumping in the pools and playing water balloon fights. That's how it was. So do they deserve it? Well, yeah. I mean, they, it's, a, it's that relationship. You work hard, and you... Reap the benefits. Kind of deserve that. So this is where I want to start off. God's righteousness and God's dealing with his people is on that aspect that we get what we deserve. And I want you to get that because God speaks as a covenant God. So God is establishing an everlasting covenant, has established an everlasting covenant with you and I, with his people that he's talking about here. And this covenant binds God to himself by what he has promised. He has promised us an eternal inheritance. He has promised us peace, what we read in verses 14 through 16. He has promised us peace and abundance. So this covenant God is bound by it, and he asks to act righteously with his people. We get what we deserve. So righteousness equals being free from guilt as we've been declared righteous. And Exodus 20, you don't have to uh, go there, but I'm just going to read all these verses like I did last week. Exodus 23 verse 7 says, Keep far from false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. So here is God making sure that we do not act wickedly, because if we act wickedly, what's going to happen? We get what we deserve, right? What, what, what has been happening in Hosea since chapter 1 and chapter 2? They have acted wickedly, and God in his mercy has warned them. And in that warning, they still act wickedly, and so God brings judgment. Are we starting to understand now the book of Hosea a little bit more? It's, it's they are getting what they deserve. But it is his duty now to maintain righteousness within his community. How is God going to do that? So this is the forensic aspect of, of God. Remember that. This is God's forensic aspect of righteousness, of how God deals with 
each other. So God is dealing righteously with us. And how is he going to maintain righteousness with his people? Well, his people have to act righteously with others. They have to give themselves righteously. They have to be righteous with others. It it's, it's goes to the simple fact as if you are a business owner, if you are a contractor, if you are someone that, that is selling something or in charge of something, you have to make sure you act righteously. But that also means if you have a job, you have to act righteously. This is why God was so ingraining this in his people when he would tell David in 1 Chronicles 18 verse 14. So David reigned over all Israel and he administered justice and equity to all his people. David was in charge and because David was in charge he had to be righteous. Live and act and decree righteousness. This, this is getting into this you and me level now. When you have a job, you show up to your work on time because you're righteous. When you own a business, you make sure that your practices are just and fair and you don't cheat people off because you're righteous. If you're a student in the university, in college, or in high school, you don't cheat because you're righteous. I don't know what, that's, what, what somebody said over here, but now. But we have to act righteously because we've been declared righteous, and that's how God maintains his community in order, by maintaining and giving himself righteous. We don't have the, uh, the luxury to act unrighteously because God has not been acting unrighteously with us. Or has he? And that's where we go back to faulty theology. Well, God is unfair. God is unrighteous. Look at what he's doing to me. Look at everything that I have to grow up. Look at that person over there. They grew up with a father. They grew up with a mother. They grew up in a beautiful family. And I had to suffer my entire life like this. That's not fair. And who do we blame immediately? God. And, and why, why are we angry all the time? Because it's God's fault? Because God put us here? He stuck us here? And we become deists. God is distant. God doesn't care. God is not involved. God is not with us. It's his fault that of our situation. But that's not God. Because God is righteous. So God gives each what they deserve. Now, this goes deeper. So did that child deserve to grow up in a fatherless home? Did that child deserve to grow up abused by parents or by family members? How do you answer that question? How do you answer questions like, did those babies deserve to die? How do you answer questions like, did the Holocaust really need to happen? Did six million Jews really need to die? Is that God acting righteously? Now I would love to ask, I would love to sit down and ask you those questions. I'm pretty sure you might have them for yourself. Well, here's the answer, my friends. Well, even though it's not the complete answer, but here's one aspect of the answer. 
though we act righteously because God is righteous, Though God is righteous because he declares himself to be righteous and the word of God declares himself to be righteous, we cannot forget one crucial element of creation. And that is this concept of sin. Sin is very real. Sin is not God's agent. Sin is who we are in nature. Sin is what God has erased from us when he has declared us righteous. So know that child did not deserve to grow up in a fatherless home. Know those kids did not deserve to die. Know the Holocaust did not deserve to happen. It's not God's fault. It's this nature of sin that man has that because we are governed by sin, we act by sin's standards. And what are sin's standards? I can tell you one thing, it's not righteousness. That's why the Bible describes Satan as the father of lies. We have this contrast between good and evil, and everything God does is good. Everything the enemy does is bad. So it isn't necessarily God manufacturing these evil deeds in his creation. It's the fact that sin exists that bring them about. But righteousness in our dealings with each other and in the community can bring a stop to this. That's why God governed his people in Israel. That's why there was a theocracy in Israel. It was God with his people and God gave them the standard and you shall live by the standard because if you live by the standard then everyone gets treated righteously. It's not socialism. It's theocracy. Everyone gets treated righteously because God imposes it over his people. And now that's the Old Testament law under the Old Testament covenant but now as we've been brought into this new relationship righteously we now have this opportunity to act righteous with others. So although there's a, a law, a line that is drawn between good and bad, God also rewards. So yes, when we act in sin opposed to righteousness then we do get what we deserve. But when we act righteously, we also get what we deserve by being rewarded by God. And the Bible speaks on God's rewards and God's uh, uh, righteous acts of wrath over us. And so I want to leave you with this understanding. God draws the line. Here's, here's what we have to really understand. So the marriage metaphor that we've been dealing with this entire time in Hosea, this marriage metaphor, there is a very clear line that isn't to be crossed. And it is the line of righteousness. It is a line that God says, this is, in a simple sense, good, and this is bad. If you do this bad, evil thing, you will reap the benefits of that evil thing, which is wrath. If you do this, which is good according to my law, according to my nature, then you will reap that benefit in the relationship. So there is a line that is drawn. And we have to depend 
and put our faith, and this is what faith is all about, that if that line is drawn, that means that it's drawn from a good God. And it is for our benefit. That, that's where faith comes in. So we have to measure up our faith to the righteousness of God and say, if, if, if we're going to live like this, it's because we completely know and abide that whatever you say is good. And whatever you judge is good. Even if I like it or I don't. Because at the end of the day, we are not God. But we are called to be righteous. So God demonstrates his, righteous with his righteousness with his people and provides justice to his people. He honors their obedience. He blesses their, decision, their, their righteous decisions. And God focuses on his people to build them into a community of righteousness. This is beautiful. Everyone is screaming for social justice today. Everyone wants social justice. When we look at all of these acts that are going on in, in our current context, and everyone is screaming out social justice. As if there is an adjective to righteousness. We do not describe righteousness by adding that social aspect to it. People need to be treated righteously. That's it. People need to be treated the way God is. People need to be treated in God's righteousness. So we don't advocate for the social justice movement, even though it may have some good, good inclinations. We advocate for God's justice. You know what America needs? God's righteousness. You know what the people in the South, you know what South Chicago needs? God's justice. You know what the, the, the police officers need? They need to be governed righteously. And they need to govern and execute righteously. This is all in the Bible, my friends. And this is all part of the community that we need to be. So here's that forensic aspect, and we're going to finish it. I'm going to leave it there today. Next week we'll talk about the third aspect of it, and then we'll go into the rest of the attributes in, in verse 19 and 20, which is, uh, if you just go back really quickly, to verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness. There's one in justice. Uh, that's part of righteousness. In steadfast love, that's three. In mercy, that's four. And then the final one in verse 20, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Those are the things that we're going to be talking about today. And that all fits within this metaphor of marriage. But I want you to leave knowing this. God is righteous. He treats you righteously. He expects you to live in righteousness towards him, and he expects you to live righteously towards others. Amen? All right, let's get to our feet. And let's put ourselves in prayer that we can uphold God's standards in our life. Let's pray. Father, you have drawn those lines that even though man and woman have tried to erase or draw our own lines, even though we've come to rules and government on our own righteousness, even though people from the state of New York 
have discovered that to them the line of killing and aborting babies is righteous, we measure that up against your word. And that is not righteous. And therefore, people that act unrighteously are deserved of your wrath. And so we pray for mercy over the government of New York. We pray for mercy over those people's lives because you will not stand silent with innocent blood being shed. Father, I pray that all of us here understand righteousness and that we are governed by your righteousness and so therefore we are to act righteously with others. Help us. Have mercy on us. Give us what we deserve because we know at the end we are your children and you give us what we need. We thank you for that today. We honor you for you that for, for that today, that we get to stand at the altar being declared righteous when our history has said something completely different. We thank you for your grace in Jesus' name. And we all say, Amen. Amen.